I'm here with Dr. Edward Mayu. We are in New York City at the Marriott Marquis, where you have been speaking, doing a great job this morning in your conference talking. In your last talk, you talked a lot about screening uh, and screening women for their health care and the new recommendations since, I guess, 2012 that just keep changing. Maybe you can update it for uh, those of us in the ReachMD audience about what you were saying and the important points. It's a great time. It's an exciting time to be in women's health care because of all these things that are happening. It's a little scary to have change, but it's great because we are getting new opportunities to take better care of women. So in 2012, we came out with new guidelines. It was a multi-society, multidisciplinary guidelines where pretty much all the big players who developed guidelines for the United States, got together, came out with some common recommendations that we all can follow. So the bottom line is we start screening at age 21 years for cervical cancer. Between ages 21 and 25, we use cytology only. 25 to 30, we use pap testing or cytology with reflex HPV testing. And over the age of 30, we can move on to doing co-testing, doing the HPV and the pap test brought in together and and analyzed together uh, to help even further drive down the risk of cervical cancer. You know, one of the questions that came up during your your talk, or after actually, after the talk, was about concerns. I thought it was interesting. Concerns physicians had about, because women may not come in as much as they did in the past for APAP, that they may get less care, more problems could develop. I love the way you answered it, and I'd like you to address it because I think you made some really good points about the importance of continuity of care and changing what we do. It is an important point because the the fact that you are not doing a pap smear necessarily every year doesn't really change whether or not the patient needs to see their provider. The United States Preventative Task Force recommends certain STD screenings for younger women in the reproductive age group. Women who spent more time on this earth may need cholesterol screening and other screenings for general health care, none of which are tied directly to the pap test. So in the past, when we thought it was a yearly sort of test, then it was perfectly fine to say, and let's do all that yearly. But women need good care, and we need to do the best screening test based upon giving them the best outcomes. So do the PAP test as indicated and screen women and give them good care as indicated. They don't have to be tied together. One of the things that I've seen, and now it's, it's nationwide, is the importance of evidence-based care. A lot of what you talk about is there's data to support the recommendations that have been given and why. Like, you're not just coming up and saying, well, this is a good idea. We've looked at it. You, you've made another point, I thought, which was really fascinating about how, how we got the annual PAP in the first place as part of medical care. You can address that a little bit. Well, you know, when, when the pap smear was developed, um, it, we didn't know how often to do it. And there really, we did not even have the scientific basis necessarily to make the best judgments on when should we do it, how often should we do it, and in whom. So once we started doing the test, we picked what we thought was probably a good answer and ran with it, and that's where the yearly pap test came from. Over time now, we have better tools. We understand how to do good statistics and good studies that will tell us how often should we screen and who should we screen, and we have that data now. So that's what our current recommendations are on. You're right. People will ask the question, well, can we miss things? Will we miss other diseases? And and those are all valid points, and those are all questions that we absolutely should ask. 
The good question is now we've got very solid evidence. We're not guessing anymore so much as looking at the test and looking at the disease and looking at what happens to people when we use it this way, which is ultimately what gives us the right answer. Well, I think also, I practice outside Philadelphia, you're in South Carolina, we talk, but we're now more and more doing similar things as opposed to maybe what was the state of care in our community or whatever. And I think that's a positive as well. It is, because it makes it easier to know what the best answer is for any given patient. And the fact that all of these societies looked rigorously at the data together, we actually have enough data. And that's what really has made it possible for us to bring these different recommendations so that they're fairly unified, uh, because they are evidence-based and the evidence has all led us to the same place. I know you're also going to be talking about vaccinations and protection against HPV and things. What are some key points uh, that you, you plan to target uh, in your next talk, which obviously by the time people see this will have occurred, but what are some of the things you want to target? Well, it, it's very exciting, not only because we are doing a better job at secondary prevention of cervical cancer, but now we're also doing primary prevention. And really, what in medicine isn't better to prevent disease than try to treat it once it becomes a problem? Uh, we're going to talk a lot about um, who we recommend giving it to in this country, the HPV vaccinations. There's a new HPV vaccination, the nine-valent, that has been released. And we're going to talk about the recommendations of who to use it in. What about people who've already gotten the other ones or are partway through the series? Uh, and how do we apply it? And we're going to look a little bit about the data on how effective these are. And, and the data that we're seeing out of countries like Australia that have have such high vaccination rates, the amount of disease that they are preventing is staggering. Um, it is so exciting to think that one day we might catch up and prevent that much disease in our patients. So you're really, we were just talking about how Philadelphia and South Carolina, you're now talking about the world essentially taking this information and using it. Walking over here, actually, someone whether they mistook me for you or whatever, but what I was hosting asked me a specific question, which I said, I think I know the answer. I'm sure he'll address it in his talk, but I'll give you the answer that I gave anyway. And I said, but I always like, if I don't know, I want to make sure that we, but they said, why is the vaccination stopped at 26? And I said, my guess, and this is a guess, just by thinking about it is there isn't evidence to show it works beyond that age was the one question. It was that involved. And then the follow-up was, well, when does it wear out? And I said, I don't think it's been out long enough for them to know when it wears out. Tell me if giving it a go, I gave the right answers because you'll, I'm sure you'll be addressing it and you'll answer it directly. Uh, moderately good. I got, uh, I got past it. The, you're pretty much right with the second one. We have data going out 10 years, slightly past 10 years actually, um, just following people over time. And so we have what we call a sentinel cohort with the very earliest people who are vaccinated. We follow them. So should we need boosters in the future, we'll know in advance and we can tell people. The bench studies, the, the bench science tells us we don't think we're going to need them in the future. But you don't know till you get there. And just like chicken pox, now we're giving boosters because we were so good at we're eliminating chicken pox. We may eliminate enough HPV to not to have to have boosters sometime in the future. But so what? We're preventing cancer. If we need a booster, we'll do a booster. So far, we have not found that need with data out to 10 years. Now, the past age 26 question is a little tougher. We do have some data, and we know that we can prevent the infections, we know that we can prevent some levels of abnormal PAP tests, at least through age 45, 
but it was not approved in this country by the FDA past age 26. And that's simply where the first studies went to. So that's, there's nothing magical about HPV in 26 other than it was the cutoff for the studies. Okay. And I think, you know, if anything, it certainly has raised the discussion between doctors and their patients about this and other sexually transmitted infections and the way they're spread as well. So I think that's really an important point when we get to, to preventive care. Other things that I didn't ask you that in this short window of time we have to talk, you wanted to bring up you think is crucial. Well, I, I, the biggest thing overall is whether we want to discuss the nuances of which test to screen with and, and what's exact interval, the most important thing, and even people who disagree about this will say, we all agree that the most important thing is that your women get screened. You don't want to let perfection ogring over minor details keep women from getting screened because it's the ones who don't get screened that are truly at risk for cancer. So as always, talk to your patients, help them understand, help them make good decisions, and help them get that good preventive health care. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough with Dr. Edward Mayo. We're talking about a lot of the issues you're bringing up here in New York. Uh, it's a wonderful day of lectures and conversations, and I think part of the important part is the conversations. As far as people who have asked you questions, what was maybe some of the interesting things that uh, after the talk people were asking you about that they might be curious about? A lot of great questions. We have a wonderful audience here in New York today, both online and actually at the conference. And so some of the questions they were asking about were relating to the newest FDA-approved screening mechanism, which is primary HPV screening. So in the past, we started with the pap test, and then later we were doing the pap test and added HPV testing to get more precise, better estimate of risk answers. And now the FDA has approved sort of turning that system them over, turning around backwards, where we do HPV testing first as our primary screen and use genotyping HPV 1618 specific testing and PAP testing on the more equivocal cases. So PAP testing still involved, but not as our frontline test using the HPV test. It's a new thing, so there's obviously lots of questions about it. But the bottom line is, it actually does a better job at reassuring the negative women that they are safe than our current strictly pap testing gives us. So that's a great thing that we can really reassure women, and it gives us another very powerful tool to help prevent cervical cancer. And if you can hear in the background that ding and the nice chime, that's telling us that we have to go back to the presentations. I know you're going to be giving the next talk I referred to earlier. I want to thank you for joining us on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest, Dr. Edward Mayo. If you missed any or part of this program, feel free to check us out on the website. You can download the podcast. Again, thank you for listening.